When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hey everybody, welcome to the Sharp Tongue Podcast. I'm your girl, Jessie Mae Peluso. In your ear every week. How you doing? How you living? How you loving? How you learning? I am pumped for today's episode because it taps into my nerdness, my nerdiness, my love of reading. But before that, I'm going to ask you, like I do every week, to go to the YouTube page, subscribe, tell your friends they can see my face, youtube.com forward slash Jesse May Peluso. Click subscribe and let your friends know I'm a hoot. Tell them they need to have me in their ear. Tell them to subscribe. Tell them how great this podcast is. Also, if you feel so inspired, please leave us a review on Apple. Let us know how you love in the pod. A couple of you have left some rudeness, but you know what? I'm open to constructive criticism. Truly. Truly, I'm open to constructive criticism. But thank you guys so much for your weekly support. I appreciate it. We can't do it without you. I'm going to be back out on the road. So I'm going to be returning the love live. Tour dates are going to be available on jessiemay.com starting in about a week. I will be in... Oh, shit. I'm breaking shit on on my studio table here. I will be in Connecticut. I will be in New Jersey. Rhode Island, Alaska, Edmonton, British Columbia, where the hell else? Can you guys hear paper? I'm like, (laughs) I have actually written down Atlanta, Syracuse, New York, Florida, Dallas, Texas. Uh, Let's see where else. I just want to let you guys know. Minnesota. And a couple other spots. The tour is lit. That's not the name, but I'm releasing the name soon. The dates and available ticket links will be available soon. I just want to let you guys know where I will be so you can see me live in your face. It's going to be great. We're getting back on track. Gonna the, the special will be filmed at the end of next year in Syracuse, New York, probably the end of September. And my Netflix show is coming out soon in July. I will be finding that out as well. The date, once I know, you guys will know ASAP. And what else is going on? So many things are going on. And uh, my Spotify podcast hopefully will be coming out as well. So, hey, here we are. 2021, not looking too bad, you guys. Coming back out hot. Hot mic. Hot Pod, this episode is uh, a little deviation, not really a little deviation, but I was lucky enough to sit down with an author of a book that I read that 
got me through a little bit of grief. This is not a grief survival guide mini series episode. That will be, you know, I do those as I'm inspired. So another one of those will pop up soon, probably in a couple weeks or so. This episode is featuring an author of a book called The Wife Between Us. She is a multi best-selling author and co-author. Her new book, I believe, is You Are Not Alone. You can order that now. She wrote a book called The Wife Between Us with her writing partner, Greer Hendricks, that was just a page turner. So if you're somebody who likes books, nerd alert, sapiosexual, whatever, please pick it up. It's amazing. The links will be in the description of the episode as well. But I was lucky enough to sit down with best-selling author, mom, hot, hot mom, Sarah Pecanon. I probably said her name wrong. Sharp Tongue Podcast. Beep, 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 beep. You're listening to the Sharp Tongue Podcast. I'm your host, Jesse May Peluso. It's a personal... Look, well, it's not really a look because it's a podcast. I'm already fucking this up. This is kind of like a verbal comedy diary, a deep look into the crevices of my mind. It's gonna get dirty. You might cry. You probably laugh. Hopefully, you'll laugh. The whole point is for you to laugh, but you also might cry. I talk about my family. I talk about farts. farts. I talk about love, loss comedy, how hard it is to make it in this biz. I'm a fucking professional. Each week it's something different. Sometimes I have a guest host. Sometimes it's going to be a movie companion episode. Sometimes I just ramble about the bullshit I dealt with the week before. You never know what you're going to get. It's raw, uncut, and funny. It's me. Hey peeps, we did it. Another day, another dollar. You've heard the intro. You know who's here. I'm excited to talk with her because I literally consumed her book like it was uh, a delicious meal. It helped me get through grief because I didn't want to really deal with the emotions. And this book just sat in a place in my life that I needed. And it's it's we'll talk to her about it because it's a. it tells a story that you guys know about me that I have told on a couple different podcasts, but this book reigned true for my own personal life. But please give it up for the amazingly talented Sarah Pekanen. Am I saying your last name right? Close. It's Pekanen. Pekanen. Not sort of anything at this point. I've heard so many variations. I always add like a, I had um, an author, another author on who wrote Genius Foods, Max Lugavere. And I called him Max Lugavere, and he said, you know, it made him sound more fancy. So now he's a Disney villain, and now you are as well. <laughs> I love it. I will take it. <laughs> Thank you so much for taking some time to sit down and talk with us. I, It's a shock to some people. I don't know why that I am a book nerd. I love to read. It is... It's my solace. It's it's just like having a good friend or over your house. Like when you have a good book, there's nothing like it. Um, this book, I have it right here. I was like, I got to contact her and both of you because you, you co-wrote this. Yeah. The Wife Between Us. Um, was this your third book co-writing with with each other? So this is my this was my first book co-writing with Greer. I did. OK. Eight, eight solo books before Greer and I, Greer was my editor on seven of those books. And uh, she left Simon & Schuster. We began to co-write together. And so we've written three, soon to be four, psychological thrillers together. So 
you know, it's always interesting when I see that there's a couple writers on a book. I wonder how do you divvy up the writing? Does one person do a specific job or do you sort of, is it a completely co-collaborative situation? You know, COVID changed everything. Like early on, we would do every line together. We would get on Google Docs and Google Hangouts. The minute the kids went to school at nine o'clock, you know, call each other up. We'd like scream when we saw each other in the camera, you know, <laughs> and I'd be like, turn off the camera. We're not camera ready right now. But then just start talking. And we would be in each other's homes and lives for, you know, eight hours a day, um, hearing everything going on, saying, you know, hang on, I got to do a T&P break. That was our big thing, a T&P break for, you know, two minutes. And tequila and, we, and, and pee. Yeah, I, I, I mean, that sometimes, sometimes like after five, we'd be like, you know, there, it, it's the writing's a little Dale right now with a little glass of wine. Yeah, you need a little something to like spice it up, I would imagine. Yeah, Greer says I, I write better when I'm tipsy. When I veer into drunk, it, it, maybe the writing's not so good. I'm like not like Hemingway who could write, you know, completely soused all the time. And I know, just with like a heroin needle in your arm. Some guys, you know, some of those classic writers... Thank, I, I really want to personally thank heroin for some of the amazing American literature that we have. <laughs> <laughs> good, kids. <laughs> Do drugs, write a classic. Uh, I guess there is a real fine line when you're enjoying shit like tequila or whatever. It's the same for me, like when I'm writing stand up or doing that sort of, you know, off the stage work. There really is a fine line where it starts to get not creative and just really terrible. Well, because, you know, it's like, I mean, I don't know about when you're writing, but I feel very self-conscious. My In my head are like all the mean girls I ever went to school with were like, that line is crap. Oh, what a cliche. Throw another one in. Like you beat yourself up. So sometimes, you know, you, you kind of get into this little box where you're you're just playing mind games with yourself and, and, you know, it's easy to kind of put it down and be like, I'm not going to write today. Like I I don't have the muse. I don't have the, the spirit. So a glass of wine now and then, you know, not all the time, but you know, can help maybe. um, I have the same thing. You know, I think it comes with creative people. Mm -hmm. The doubt can sometimes drive the creativity, but again, with consuming alcohol, there's a fine line between, you know, the doubt being a fuel and it, being a fire, you know, it's, it's such a, there's, there's a very sweet spot in there, but it's very nice to hear that. I think it's important to hear that because so often, I don't know if you feel the same when you're in your creative bubble, you know, there's so many things to Mm self-sabotage and we think we're alone in that. We look at other people. I know I do sometimes and I'm like, Oh, it comes so easy to them. I don't think that's true for anything that's successful for people, you know, trying to do something hard and become successful at it. I completely agree. I mean, you would think that Greer and I know how to put a book together. I had written eight on my own and then we wrote two together. She's edited, you know, dozens and dozens of books. We go to write our third book together. We spend six months writing 200 words. Wow. Sorry, 200 pages, 200 pages. Okay. I was like, dang, you guys were really on something that week. (laughs) What happened the week you started? You're like, you know what? We're going to take this real slow. (laughs) (laughs) So 200 pages. I'm not a math person. Um, We read it over and we're like, this is crap. This isn't working. We can't make a book out of this. We've written 200 pages and we have nowhere to go. We throw it out and we start all over again. Six months of work gone. Oh my God. Now, when you do that, 
I, I guess having somebody, is it easier to be motivated to keep going? Cause I would honestly just crawl into a ball and, and cry for a week if I had done that with like a stand-up special. Yeah. I mean, it, it you know, the, the thing is, you know, about this business, it, it's you, you have to have something in you that makes you say, I'm going to keep going. Mm-hmm. I'm going to do it. You know, you're not doing it for, you know, the money or, or, you know, whatever it is, you know, kind of, you know, getting people to, to see your work and love it. Although those things can be great benefits, but there's something in you that's almost like an itch where you're like, I, I just got to keep doing this. Sometimes I don't even want to, yeah. it's great, but you know, I, you know, if I had stopped at the first sign of rejection, I never would have had a book published. I wrote a book. I had two young kids and I was writing in every carpool line, every you know side of a soccer field, every time they took a nap. I spent years writing a book, didn't get published. Then I spent another two years writing my second book. That one got published. And then did the first, does the first one, do you go back to the first one to dig it out? Or has the first one that you ever written still still is unpublished? Yeah, it's still unpublished. And I think, you know, it it taught me how to put a book together. So I think it served its purpose. But, you know, of course, it's like, you know, when you're doing, you know, work, and you're kind of spending every free minute, like doing this, and then nothing comes of it, you're a little bit crushed. But but if you have that itch inside you, you're going to turn around and keep doing it. Yeah, I agree. I feel the same way. You know, we are both in a creative industry, like stand up is all rejection. And most industries, I think, um, where it's a thing where you're, it's a career, you know, anything, even if you're an astrophysicist or a psychologist, there's, there's a lot of failure that comes along with that. This industry is different though, because our product needs to be consumed by people and it needs to be liked by people. So that brings in a whole other slew of emotional blockages that can sort of, you know, inhibit the process. Um, this book specifically, I can't even like, I didn't know what this was going to be. I don't really like to read too much about what the book is. I look for the bestseller. I'm one of those people. Mm -hmm. I I just, it's never failed me. I'm a person who goes on Yelp and looks for the best lunch spot. I haven't been failed yet because people, you got to go with what the people are saying is good. Um, And I could not put it down. I literally, and I love books like that. I love that where it just, you think about it when you're not reading it. There's such an art to that. And so I thank you for you guys figuring that out together. Um, But I have been with a man like the, I guess Mm. we can call him the protagonist because, but I say that, but then again, the story just takes so many turns that the, the man who's in this book, Mm-hmm. I've been with an individual like that. And so once I realized like sort of what, you know, was happening and, and I don't want to give too much away. Um, I was in shock mm-hmm. and it made me wonder, my question is, did either of you go through a scenario to inspire you to write this? Because it rang so real to me. Thank you. And, you know, I, um, Neither of us had that kind of a relationship in our lives. But what we did do is we are both really kind of curious students of psychology. We read a lot about it. We, you know, listen to podcasts. And so we 
wanted to kind of build a profile of a certain kind of person. And the thing about the book that I think we really, you know, wanted to convey is that we all view our, we view everything through a unique lens. Like it's the same reason why if there is a car accident and you get, or a crime and you get 10 witnesses, you're going to hear 10 different stories Yep. because everybody sees things differently. And, you know, you and I will both come away from this interview with like different memories, different recollections, a different experience. It's, it's even though we're sharing it, we wanted to bring that idea into, you know, kind of the, the life of the reader a little bit and the life of our characters, that our characters are almost different. You know, they, they see their lives through different lenses at different times in their life and yeah. that kind of new perspective whether it's you're getting different information from somebody else that's saying, you know, I always saw it that way. And then you go, oh, wait a minute. You know, maybe it's kind of not, you know, what I always imagined things to be. Um, so a lot of that was just like us kind of, you know, geeking out on psychology and talking about, you know, different things. We, we put little things in there, um, like the Bader-Meinhof illusion when you, you know, see something, um, you know, like say it's a red Volvo. Um, and you have that on your mind, then you will see red Volvos everywhere. You'll, you know, read about them. Um, so, so a lot of that just kind of filtered in, in sort of the themes of the book. But back to your uh, original question about the character, I think one of the most powerful things um, for me, and I know for Greer, is when we've heard from readers who have said, this book, you know, touched something in me because of something I've lived through. And we've kept in touch with with some of those readers, and that that's like worth it all. It, it doesn't matter, you know, how many copies you sell. It, you know, if you have actually touched somebody's life, they've spent a few hours with you, and they've taken something away from it. That's incredible. And I honestly think I know that this book, although it is, you know, entertaining, and I did see that. I was like, oh, they definitely are into psychology. Mm -hmm. Just the way you sort of broke down different things that were going on within each character. It, it, it honestly, I was like, okay, someone's they're they're obviously doing their research because I've read books where you're like, you know, I don't, I think this person just sort of pulled this out of thin air, but this it felt so full and uh, informative. I had to Google some stuff. I'm like, okay, they're making me Google. I knew about the Bader Meinhof because, you know. I was doing some research after my mom passed away and I'm open to everything, but you know, I read a book about like the signs after somebody passes away. And then I sort of attributed it to, you know, it's kind of like a Bader Meinhof yeah. phenomenon where, you know, Oh, I always see this thing. And so I, I had to sort of look at it that way practically for myself, because that's just how I am to be able to understand what was going on because I, as as much as I want to have like a, or I wanted to have a mystical approach to my mother's passing, I also needed to understand the psychology behind it. So I just thought that was funny that, you know, um, interesting that you had written about it in the book. Uh, and it just further validated how I felt about that scenario. Um, can I read a sentence that like I had to reread a couple times to you? I would love it. Okay. Because I think people really need to listen to this and ladies out there and anybody in a relationship needs to listen to this. There was Richard's truth. There was my truth. And there was the actual truth, which is always the most elusive to recognize. Mm -hmm. And that can be true for a lot of things. And it's such a, it's such a deep statement to relationships because so much 
gets lost because people get lost in each other. Um, I guess my question is, have you ever, and I, I know you sort of touched on it before, but was there ever any relationship where you sort of lost yourself that you pulled from to put into this story? That is a good question. I've never been asked it that way. You have said to me, you know, your earlier question was a little bit different. You said, did you have this kind of relationship? And what you asked now was, have you ever lost yourself in a relationship? And yes, times in my life when I've been very vulnerable, uh, I have lost myself in a relationship. It's a great distraction, like all the anxiety you're feeling about, you know, whatever it is in your life, if you channel that onto like this thing, it maybe it becomes a little more manageable in a way. Um, so that's, um, that's definitely something I have done. Um, even though I've had other times in my life when I'm totally self-reliant, like I, you know, after college, put on a backpack and went around Europe for three months alone with no plan, no phone, you know, a thousand bucks, you know, that was sort of it. And, you know, nobody knew where I was and that was totally fine. So I think, you know, it goes back to maybe the theme of the book. We're all different people at different times in our lives. And, you know, there are circumstances outside and inside that, that play into that. I agree. And I'm also happy that the guy who was dubbed the serpent didn't find you on your travels. Did you watch that Netflix miniseries? The serpent? Oh my God. There was this guy like in the seventies snatching up backpackers Oh my god! and like w- beautiful women like you just, you know, and you know, that whole era where everyone's Ooh. like, Oh, we're all friends. It's totally cool. You know, after the sexual revolution, we're like, Oh, drugs are awesome. Let's just go hang at this guy's house. And this dude would drug these people and just cause absolute mayhem. So I'm so happy that he didn't I'm snatch you up. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good thing. <laughs> yeah. I want to watch. <laughs> I have okay. I have um, two more sentences. Is that okay? Yes. I'm okay. I I do this regardless if I get the opportunity to discuss it with the author. Um, if Emma didn't live up to Richard's expectations, it was inevitable she would f- if that she would fail to. There would be consequences. Now I underline that for a, a huge reason that I mentioned in the beginning of this, that I know there are women who are going to read this book or who have read this book Mm -hmm. that have been in a scenario where that is their truth. That's Mm -hmm. their reality. My question is when you're writing something like this, do you, is there any trepidation? Is there any, do you guys think about that? Like, we're writing this and there are women who are actually going through this. And is that a motivator? Is it something that scares you guys? Is it something you have to consider? How do you navigate knowing that this book is that powerful? Thank you. Um, You know, it's funny because sometimes the things you write that you don't expect to be controversial end up being sort of controversial. (laughs) You you know, you get a little surprised, you know, with, with that line, we were, I mean, that was the truth, that there would be consequences um, in this kind of a relationship. It was just a fact. It wasn't a condemnation, although obviously, you know, that's not a positive thing. It it wasn't, you know, affirming it or lifting it up. It was just like, this is the truth. This is what's going to happen. So we weren't 
worried about any kind of backlash or any, um, you know, anybody approaching us about that uh, who had lived through that because I think we were very careful. Like, you know, where our sympathies lie if you're, you know, reading the book. Um, yeah. Especially if you get to the end, you're like, yeah. man, I just, I felt like I wanted to go and, and, you know, get on all my friends cycle schedule. Like let's all cycle together and take over the world. <laughs> um, this is a really general question, but because I am someone who has been in the process of writing a book while going through very traumatic things and trying to find uh, a place and an emotional place, but also from a technical standpoint, just understanding the place to start. How does one start a book? And I know it's a big, broad question and it's different for everybody. So I guess, how do you start a book? What's the first thing you do? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm glad you asked this because I feel like it's kind of shrouded in mystery. And like some writers don't like to talk about their process or other writers are like, oh, I, you know, I've got to go to this cottage on the beach and everything must be white. And I, you know, must sit there in front of my billowing curtains and have the- That's me. So that sounds great. It just sounds great. If it's not, it's not going to happen because okay. you will then be consumed by creating the perfect environment in which to write. And mm. you can't, you can't do that. Like you have to, or at least this is how I think of it. It's not an art. It's a craft. Ooh. You have to be as diligent about it as you would, whatever else you're committed to. Let's say you want to run a marathon, right? You're not just going to show up one day and be like, I'm going to run a marathon. You're going to train. You're going to run in the rain. You're going to run on days. You feel like crap. You're going to skip a day and then want to quit and haul yourself back and get out there and run again. And trucks are going to run, you know, splatter puddles on you. It's going to be awful and glorious and good. And some days you're going to be like, I could run, you know, 50 miles. I'm having the greatest high. It's, it's all going to be like that mixed in. And that's what writing is like. Like you just have to commit every single day. I am going to show up and I'm going to do, you do a page a day, you'll have a draft of a book in a year. And so, you know, just, just make yourself do it. There are some books I can recommend that really helped me. Um, I read uh, Stephen King on writing. Is yes. That's right. So that's a great one. That my favorite of all time, which I recommend and I send to people, James Scott Bell, Plot and Structure, is my Bible. I have mm. grab it from downstairs. It is like marked up. I have like outlines of, you know, books I've written on it. Um, because the thing is like holding a whole book in your mind is overwhelming. Like if you're writing a 20 page paper, you know, something like that, like you can pretty much handle it all in your mind when you're writing a book. I mean, Greer and I, you know, we have two minds and we're still calling characters by the wrong name. We get back our copy edits. They're like, you said <laughs> blue eyes, he has brown. You said it was a Tuesday. It's a Friday, two days later, like just those kind of mechanics, let alone keeping the plot, you know, propulsive and going and, and you know, making the reader want to turn pages, all of that is a lot to do. So having a book that kind of breaks down the mechanics of it, like the James Scott Bell book is terrific. It's been invaluable to me. So an outline is vital, especially I would imagine for something like this, where there's, you're dealing with tenses of time and you're dealing with different characters and different times of their life. And the psychology aspect 
it's almost like two books in one because of how layered it is. Um, you know, you talked about treating it like you're going into a marathon. I'm wondering what are some distractions you've had to overcome yourself and your, your career? Cause I, let me tell you, there are distractions all over the place. <laughs> oh, I hear you. It's like the laundry has never looked so good. You know? <laughs> that in, gotta watch. I mean, anything, you know, um, I mean, for me earlier on when I you know, was trying to write my solo books, I only had little pockets of time because I had these two, you know, boys who, and now I have three boys. Um, but at the time I had two who were quite young, never seemed to sleep. Like wanted to get in trouble, like peanut butter on the dog, like whatever they could do to, you know, um, kind of tear up the house. So I, I just had like, you're asleep. I'm going to tiptoe away for 10 minutes and try to write a line. And so I learned to turn on the gas a little bit when my day expanded and everybody went to school, I would be like, Oh, I have six hours. You know, I, it suddenly became less urgent, but that's where the discipline comes in, where you're like, I'm going to sit here. I'm going to turn off my phone. I'm going to turn off. I'm not going to be able to go on Facebook, Instagram, whatever. And I'm going to make myself just write that page or two pages or whatever it is. And even if it's it, it, like you were talking about the craft, even if you're not sure where you're going in that specific day, it's more important to be in the process of it than to just say, well, I don't know what I really feel like writing today. You know, it's, it's, it's important to get into that habit and create that sort of momentum. Don't you think? A hundred percent. No writing is ever wasted. It might not make it into your book. It might make it into something else. It might just be like, okay, I, you know, worked out the kinks in a sentence and I'm going to be more confident the next time I do that. It is much better to just write anything. And a lot of writing, you know, prompts, if you ever go to like a writing workshop, they'll say, sit down, I'm going to set a timer for 15 minutes. Your pen has to keep moving across the page. Write nonsense. You know, oh, I like that. I like a timer. I, 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 there's always got to be like a little device for me. So I like that. I might, I might use that and try that in my own process that I'm in. I've got something for you. So National uh, Nano Write Month, National Writing a Novel Month. If you follow them on Twitter, November is a month and they do little like sprints and prompts where, you know, I wrote half a book. Um, wow. Workbook by doing that because I needed that motivation at that time too. But they'll be like, you know, 15 minutes go or, you know, if you're having trouble with a character, put her in a scene with this. And, you know, it's a lot of fun and you feel like you're in a community. I'm going to put that in the show notes. So I'm def definitely going to ask you to send me that information. Um, where, you know, I, w I wonder about your background because, you know, I, I don't know if your parents are writers or if they were collegiate. W what was your upbringing like and, and what got you to become a writer, this beautiful writer that you are now? Those are two very big questions. So take your time. <laughs> Yeah. Um, yeah, my my so my dad, his parents were immigrants, um, you know, never got past, I think, uh, fourth grade and seventh grade mechanic and waitress. He knew he wanted to write, um, but not fiction. He wanted to write medical nonfiction. He had had. Some Whoa, that's a that's like ambitious. Where were his parents from? Do you mind my asking? Uh, what, what? England, and then my grandmother was French Canadian. Okay. So, you know, my grandfather didn't really speak much English. She was a, you know, mechanic, but brilliant, hardworking, you know, wonderful people. And my dad was born with a heart condition and told you won't live past 20. Uh, the technology had not been created to save him. And I think he just spent so much time in hospitals for different reasons. Mm. And he got really interested in medical writing. 
so he ended up going to college. Um, you know, they they managed to send you know their son to college, and he became a medical writer. He wrote uh, seven books, um, and I would see him like getting lost in this world. And I, I don't know if it's genetic or if it was like learned, but I did that too. From the time I was a little kid, I would write books. I always knew it was fiction. That's what I had to do, but I would send books to publishers at like eight, 10, 12. Wow. Get back rejection letters, you know, keep trying. Did you keep any of your rejection letters? I love keeping stuff like that. No, I kept some of the books, like miscellaneous tales and poems, which I can't believe wasn't published. You need to release, you you should do (laughs) like a release of what you wrote as a child. I think that would be awesome to read because children are so creative. And, you know, the one thing that they have that we lose as an adult, I think sometimes, is this just oblivious... Uh, just like this approach to life where you, you, you have this oblivious fear yeah, and, and you think you can do anything for the most part, if you're raised within a certain parameter, were you now your father had a heart condition. Did he, is he still with us? Did he survive? He is wow. They, they created the technology. He had open heart surgery, you know, quite, I think he was 22 um, and is knock on wood. Yeah. Still with us. And he's 82. Oh, that's amazing. I love dads, man. I mean, I don't have one. Mine died, but I love dads. I love dads that have lived through, you know, that sort of age where they had to really adjust from this war-torn era, no technology and everything sort of transforming into this faster world. I just I love that sort of mentality. My dad was kind of like, you know, in the middle of being from that era and trying to learn how to use his iPhone and he was always kind of, you know, goofy and affable, but would, would bitch about that. Is your dad somebody who had an easy sort of transformation into this new world or is he stuck in his old ways? Hell no. He's a disaster on it. My mom, I mean, they just like, you know, they'll have a conversation and Siri will text it out and send it to me because they'll confuse. They barely even hang up the phone. Like, you know, if I have a conversation with them, I'm like, hello, hello. And they're arguing about whether or not to turn into this McDonald's or keep going. I mean, they're, they're hilarious with um, technology. But the thing is now, like with my kids, I'm sure my kids are like, mom, God, you know, you're, you're a dinosaur with all of this. So you're a hot dinosaur. If they're calling you a dinosaur, I'm pretty sure you're Celine Dion's sister for <laughs> sure. You said French Canadian. I'm like, are you related to Celine Dion? Do you want me to sing? Cause I'm really, uh, that would end all of your... <laughs> Now, do you and Greer, are you guys like hanging out? Are you like besties? We're really close. She lives in New York, though, and I'm in D.C. So we don't see each other much. We do like one weekend or, you know, a few days a month. We'll meet in a hotel and we'll just write, write, write. And then we tour together. But, um, you know, it's kind of nice because if we were in the same city, I feel like, our worlds just overlap and there could be like points of conflict, but because it's all about writing, supporting each other, like it just, it feels very pure. Like That's great to have a little bit of separation. What what is the hardest thing about co-writing a book? I mean, honestly, probably the only thing would be like, if you're, ready to write and the other person is like oh I you know shoot I have this doc like we're, we're very accommodating with the other and it's happened on both sides you know but like oh I've got a doctor's appointment I can't start till you know noon and you're kind of chomping at the bit um that sort of thing like you, you have to 
plan things around somebody else's schedule and vice versa. That's probably the most challenging. Now, I would guess like the greatest part is that you're with somebody, there's support. And when you're feeling a lull, they can sort of compensate and vice versa. Are there any other great things about writing with somebody that you can think of that, you know, maybe somebody who's struggling to write a book can consider partnering Mm -hmm. up with? Totally. And I mean, partnering up is, is actually a great idea. I know some, you know, writing duos that um, do really, really well, like the women who wrote the nanny diaries and, you know, there, there are so many out there, but um, yeah, I mean, it's great. Like one of the things Greer and I love is when we tour, I used to do it alone. And I mean, you probably, you probably have people with you when you're doing stand up and, and touring like your producer, but I would go out there alone and, you know, you do your event and it's so great. You get a rush and then it's like seven 30 and you go back to the hotel room and you sit there alone and you're like, eh, you know, next it's a lot day. of downtime. It's a lot yeah. of downtime and really, you know, me just trying to not flirt too hard with the pizza delivery guy. <laughs> you know, so it's like you gotta for me I, in the past, like when I first started, I had to like curb my drinking so that I could make good choices and just eat the pizza. Hilarious. Just put the pizza in my mouth. <laughs> Not give them a special tip for the pizza. No. <laughs> there wasn't any sausage on the pizza, you know? <laughs> Let's just keep it that way. <laughs> you, I was thinking about that when you said, you know, you you guys are gonna go out and tour, and obviously you tour and do a press junket when you're promoting a book what's like one of the weirdest things that's happened because i would imagine when you're out there and you kind of sometimes read excerpts from the book has has there been any weirdness because there's always weirdness in my industry because it's stand up and it brings people out and it makes them feel safe to say whatever right right i mean there have not been any i mean we've had some like surreal cool things but there hasn't been anything weird scary bad anything like that that's good what's like one of the coolest things so the coolest thing is um, we get this call. We're on tour for The Wife Between Us. And we get a call that, um, so it was optioned by Amblin, uh, which is Steven Spielberg's uh, company with DreamWorks. And, you know, it was optioned when we had only written the first third in an outline. Wow. I mean, that must have felt, that must have been so encouraging. It was crazy. We were like bouncing off the balls. We were, yeah, there's a lot of champagne. I think I drank a whole bottle of champagne. It was like four o'clock. I'm on the phone with Greer. And then we had to do business calls, like relating to it right after. And I'm like hiccuping and trying to sound so. <laughs> You're like, I'm Steven Spielberg's best friend. Can everyone stop? We call him Stevie. Um, <laughs> so we, um, so we get a call that they, you know, one of the Amblin people wants to meet with you. They're in New York. Can you fly there from tour? And we've been on tour for like, I don't know, a week. And we only bring a uh, carry on because if your luggage gets lost, like, you know, you're like three it's cities. It's a nightmare. And I find it. So we go into um, the, the airport, like in Newark or wherever we were. I, I can't remember. And we're trying to hold up clothes. Like, is this, you know, less wrinkled? Can you see the ketchup stain on that one? We throw them on in the bathroom. We get out. We run to meet this incredible woman who's a president of production. And we sit down with her and she wants to just talk to us and get to know us like a girlfriend. We love her. She's great. We chat for an hour. And then she said, you know, the reason I wanted to meet you is because a lot of screenwriters have been giving me their takes on the wife between us and nobody's had the right take. And I'm wondering if you guys want to write it. I was like, I literally like surreal moments. So, so we did. So we wrote the screenplay and uh, then we wrote the second draft of the screenplay and it is knock on wood. We'll hopefully hear something soon. 
Well, if you need a girl to be in there, I'll deliver. I'll do whatever. I'll be in the mm-hmm. background working at some little bodega. Whatever you need, I'm your girl. I think you're not be drinking tequila with Greer on one of the tables. And like, <laughs> that would be amazing. That's honestly, I feel like, you know, as a writer, you probably have a lot of goals. Was that ever a goal for you to have an option? Because I feel like now, especially it's become more, um, not standard, but something you see more often, especially like, you know, this book being sort of in the zeitgeist of like a gone girl or something like that. Was that sort of a long-term goal for this book or was it just icing on the cake? I mean, it's like every writer's dream. Like when I was writing, you know, my solo books, like a few were optioned and, you know, that was always amazing. But a lot of times things get optioned and then nothing happens. That's more the way it it goes. Oh, yeah. That's this industry. Hurry up and wait and then nothing. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, we, you know, when it got optioned, we're kind of like, okay, this is great. But, you know, I haven't heard anything for a while. But I mean, the thing that has been the most shocking to me and also like the most wonderful is that I was a journalist. Um to answer part two of your question from a while ago. I was a journalist for, for a long time. And um, I love good it. memory, by the way, <laughs> I have three kids. So I'm always juggling. I've got, you know, something going on in one corner all the time. Um, but we, um, you know, I, I worked as a journalist, loved it, like did big, you know, feature narratives, covered Capitol Hill, did all kinds of, of that. And then I had two boys within two years. And I ended up not being able to do the kind of stories I had kind of immersed myself in. And so I left my job at 31 and stayed home with them and began to write, you know, novels a few years later, just because I had to write. But I didn't get my, I didn't sell my first book till I was 40. I didn't hit the New York Times bestseller list till I was 50. Wait a minute. Girl, I need all of your secrets. Oh, 50? I'm uh, 53. Damn, girl. I need to know the water you're drinking. All your, I need your supplement list. First of all, I need that, the, the um, Instagram, that, that comp, the company, the book of the month, the November thing. I need that. And I also need all of your supplement, your list of supplements and a vial of your blood. Just that. And a FedEx package unmarked would be fucking perfect. I think it's a really important statement. You know, especially now with social media and us having so much access in, in seeing people's perfect image of what they're putting out that they're Mm -hmm. achieving. There's this comparison culture that's happening now and people think they've got to do it now and it's got to be done now. And it's got to be quick. A lot of people sort of approach life and their careers that way. And I've always had to check myself in that sense because I am one of those people I'm very competitive and I sometimes can get down on myself when I look at what other people are doing and it sort of narrative pops in my head. Well, why am I not doing that? I should achieve that. Why have I not? And you know, it's, it really takes a concerted effort to sort of check yourself and realize with any career or path that you're embarking on, it's, it's about the journey. Life literally is about the journey without sounding too cliche, but it's also very important with your career that you approach it that way, um, sort of knowing that there's going to be ebbs and flows and times where it's a little, there's a little bit of a famine. And for a writer, you know, I would imagine that that's difficult because it's a very solitary career. Mm-hmm. It's similar in stand up in the sense that the 
when you're in sort of an acquisition position creatively, it can be kind of solitary. And so for, from that standpoint for you, how have you gotten through the lulls? How have you gotten through the self doubt? What are, what are some things that you did to sort of compartmentalize and, and keep yourself motivated when books weren't selling or, you know, you, it got too busy in your life. Like how did you get through those more difficult times? Well, I mean, first, I just have to say, like, I could not do what you do. Like, your job is so much tougher. Like, I admire you're getting up in front of people. You're like bearing your soul and you're you're having to see them. And like you said, like they can react in different ways and do weird things. And and your comedy is all about like truth. Right. It's all you you know, it's it's like anything, you, you know, to have it be effective. It's got to be truth. But I mean that would be so difficult and you have to do it all the time. Like I tour two weeks a year, maybe, you know, maybe three weeks total of events, but you're doing it night after night. It, it would be brutal. So I like, you know, we, should, we, we could switch. We could do, <laughs> we can do like a little career switch. <laughs> I'll, we'll do wife swap. You come here with my dogs. I'll come hang out. <laughs> Lila, who's sleeping right next to me. Um, I do want your dog, your pit bull. I, um, you know, as I said, we put a pit bull um, rescue into our new book. So I'm, I'm a huge dog lover like you. I but, love that. And is the new one, is that the fourth one with Greer? How many? Yeah, yeah the fourth one. And it, when is that going to be released? The Golden Couple. Yes. Yeah, that'll be out March 8th. We generally turn them in and it's like a year. People think like, you know, you, you can rush a book through if it's very topical. Like if somebody you know, there's a huge scandal, you're going to see a book about it, you know, pretty quickly, but that's not the norm. Generally, the cycle is that we, you know, turn in our books, we have a really, really good editor, um, super sharp, smart, she sketched out the cover for the wife between us. To, wow. So the designer, like, here's what I have in mind, sketched it out. She called us one day and said, Hey, I've got a title for your fourth book, The Golden Couple. We wrote a book around it. We're like, that is a great title. She came up, the title was first this time? The title was first this time. I love that. I love yeah. And it's like, when you get a good title, like, how do we make this into something? Yep. Yeah. No, she is. I mean, she's one of these just unbelievable people. Um, where was I going with this? Now we were just talking about how good my memory is. Now I've lost my memory. Well, you made me remember that one time I was reading this book at an airport lounge and somebody said, is asked if I was on the cover and I was like, thank you. Ooh. Yeah. Cause it was like seven o'clock in the morning and I was not looking as fresh as these two ladies, but I'll take it cause they're I hot. I I'll take it. That. Cute blondes in the front. We get like some readers holding it to the side and putting their profile on it. So I don't know where I was going. I was going with the process. So we turn in the book to our editor. Uh, she reads it and then writes us a letter or calls us and gives us notes. And for the new book we did, we had put in one name, like on page 248. And it, this book had been read by like, you know, we had a few friends read it. My boyfriend read it, you know, Greer's husband. Nobody catches it. Our editor, who's doing 15,000 other things that day, is like, uh, you gave away your whole twist by putting in the name on page 212. So she just like pulled that right out there, saved the book. If it had gone to press like that, it would have been a nightmare. See, but, sometimes we, everybody slips up. Everybody slips up. Oh yeah. Yeah. We, we all slip up. Well, That's why you need. We on Instagram, we all screw up all the time. Our houses are live. Our relationship, our kids are not perfect. 
It's shocking, I know. Um. <laughs> well, that's a part of life, you know, that is the the guts of any sort of creative piece, you know, the, the flaws and the the things that sort of equalize us all, mm-hmm. you know. Um, one thing that inspired me when I was sort of doing a little bit of back uh, research on you, um, I was really cyber-stalking you. Uh, I was inspired because you posted a picture of you at a marina and I think you were doing a location inspiration, maybe writing. And it made me inspired for my own book and endeavor in writing to go back to my house, you know, cause I'm writing about my parents and mm-hmm. I'm wondering when you do that, if, if that's what you were doing, mm-hmm. what's the process when you put yourself in a location that may be a character in the book are you sort of you know i imagine myself i see if it were me i would just go to my mom's house get stoned and kind of let the moment come to me but i would imagine your process might be a little bit different well so okay so i know what you're talking about now so for for the golden couple we set it in dc and we wanted to have a scene at a certain area of dc i hadn't been there in a while and i had something going on with my kids that day and i just needed a few details So I had done a reading and this wonderful young woman showed up and we ended up chatting and I dragged her to come out, you know, to drinks with all of us after. And she calls me her aunt. I call her my niece. Like we just stayed in touch, but she lives in DC. So I'm like, you know, I'm trying to figure out these details. And she's like, I'll go, I'll FaceTime you. I'm right around the corner. So she went down to the Marina with her FaceTime and I was like, hold it up there. Okay. I need to see that. What does that stone look like? You know, got to put in those details. Um, That was FaceTime. That's awesome. I mean, that's even a whole other like approach to adding details to your book. I, I think, you know, for, for me reading it, the one thought that I had is the characters, like, do you sort of approach the characters kind of like a screenplay writer would, or, you know, somebody that's maybe doing a biography where you write out all of their characteristics, like what they would eat and how deep do you go into your individual characters in a book? I'm such a nerd. Like, (laughs) is it crazy that I'm interested in this? No, no. It means you're a writer. I mean, like you're thinking like a writer. I mean, that's, that's all the stuff I wanted to know. And you know, I was lucky to find a couple people who were really generous. I remember I met Jody Picot, um, who writes like everything, you know, amazing. And I was like, I had just sold my first book. I went to this event where she was, you know, speaking and I ended up like chatting with her for a couple minutes. She could not have been kinder. She like treated me like a peer, even though she's, you know, all that. Lisa Scottoline is another one. Um, I was walking into a, a party in New York. I don't even know how I got invited. It was a People Magazine party. Because you're a babe, because you're Celine Dion's <laughs> sister. <laughs> I will sing if you keep that up. Um, and I was don't you threaten me. <laughs> and I had like just gotten divorced and I was feeling like crap. And I'm like, oh God. And I, you know, and I walk in and there are all these fancy people. There was a guy behind me in line and I kept looking because I was uh, trying to see if like the one person I knew who was going to the party was coming. And it kind of looked like I kept checking out the guy, but I really wasn't. And so I was kind of getting annoyed, like, I'm not checking you out. And then I realized it was Ryan from the office who had had a book out that year and was coming to the party. So I had to change my whole energy to be like, I'm not checking you out, but I am a fan. But I, <laughs> you started to like put your hair behind you. You're like, hey, I'm just here. I'm a, hi, I'm an author. I'm a published author. say, <laughs> um, so. Anyway, so I go to the party. I'm like, I know nobody. And I see Lisa Scottoline, who's this huge, amazing author. And she walks over and I'm like, oh, you know, I'm 
whatever. And she's like, you're going to be my date tonight. Come on. And she's like the queen of the party. Like it just like, so some authors are extraordinarily kind, generous. Jennifer Weiner is another one. So I I love her books. Love her. Love her books. I always feel like if I can pay it forward, like a little bit of what they have done, giving you any tips, secrets, support, like I want to do that for other people. Like it's, there's plenty of room. There's plenty of room. There's no need for anybody to hoard information. That doesn't help anybody at all. Like the hoarding of knowledge and knowledge is, if not meant to be taught, it's wasted in sharing your experience. Like it doesn't inhibit your process as a successful writer. If anything, it's the exact opposite, you know? Yeah, and women have always come together. I feel like we're, we're so good at building community and, you know, we're so good. You haven't met my sisters. (laughs) (laughs) Some women. (laughs) We're good at burning things emotionally. (laughs) Oh yeah. Yeah. I've got some relatives like that too. But in general, like, you know, women are good at community support. Like, I'll watch your kid. I'll do that. Oh, you didn't bring a snack. Like, you know, and so I feel like, you know, that, it's translating to the professional world. Like now that we're becoming more powerful, bigger, stronger, you know, in different industries where we haven't had the opportunities, like we are looking out for each other and and it's, it's been great. For quarantine, I was thinking it would be the perfect scenario for someone to write. What was the quarantine like for you as a writer? Was it inspiring or were you like, Oh fuck now I'm stuck home. Well, and I'm forced to do something. We're kids. You know, that's the thing. Like they all came home. Like I have a 12 year old who was trying to do online school. And I mean, now he's at the point where like one screen isn't enough. He's like, got to have two or three. I'm I'm, like going around just taking screens from him at all times. (laughs) That's how he's living his life. He's doing like drum lessons on Zoom and school online all the time and homework online. So it, it became more challenging to not have you know, that those pockets of time, um, you know, my boyfriend and I moved in together at the start of quarantine. We thought, wow, that's a, that's a brave move. I know. I know they're going to find his body someday in the, in the book, (laughs) (laughs) save it for the book. (laughs) It's actually, it's been great because we're like, if we can move in together, go through coronavirus and renovate this old house that we bought, like, and we still love each other. We're going to go through like we can go through anything, you know. Well, he should be happy that that's happened because, and he should be on his best P's and Q's because you are a writer and life imitates art, imitates life. So he better be, he better mind, mind his manners or he's going to end up on page 137 of my husband's missing. Exactly. Your I new novel. To kill Where's John? <laughs> Although, <laughs> oh my God. And one of the things though, that made me fall in love with him is he read everything I've ever written. Every book, every magazine article, every newspaper article going back to, you know, God knows when, like short story, he read it all. That's so supportive. It was wonderful. Yeah. And and also if he wasn't your boyfriend, it would be very creepy. But because he's your boyfriend, <laughs> it's really nice. Because <laughs> I have like two male readers. So yeah. <laughs> I don't my stuff anymore. <laughs> Do you um do you, are you somebody who has had a traumatic past and it sort of has brought you to want to do something creative? I know your father was an inspiration because he was writing as well, but for me, you know, pulling from my own experiences in my industry, a lot of trauma is fodder for material and in the stage. So is it similar with writing for you and with your peers? Do you see that, 
trauma drives a lot of the material? I think, I mean, I think we're all traumatized. Even people who look like they had a great upbringing, like everybody has stuff that we're dealing with. So absolutely, yes. Have I lived through a lot? Yes, for sure. But the writing has always been like an escape. And during coronavirus, you know, it's not, I mean, you definitely channel your emotions into it. I cry when I write sometimes. I'm mm-hmm. in a better mood if I've written a great scene. But, um, you know, the, the writing for me, like reading and, and, you know, what you talked about in the beginning, like escaping into books, that's always been like, kind of like the different world that you go into and it's like this bubble and then you come out of it and you're kind of blinking and like, Oh, the sun's a lot higher. And you know, what just happened in the past three hours? Like, you know, it, it's like an alternate world that maybe, I don't know if it's propelled by like, you know, traumas in my life, maybe, but how can I ask you a personal question? How is your divorce and going through a divorce? How, how did that impact you as a writer? And creatively, did it, was there a disruption in the process or was there a motivation right away? So I, um, my philosophy is kids first. And so my ex and I lived in the same house for five years after separating. Separate bedrooms, same house. My mouth is wide open. That's a little, that's gangster. And you know what? I wouldn't be surprised if you're like, and we got remarried because (laughs) (laughs) although the best thing that happened. So I was like, you know, after a few years into it, I'm like, how do I date? I'm like, I look married. I'm living with the guy. Like I've told some friends that I'm married, but I'm not going to put it out like on Facebook. I'm like, how do I start dating? So this friend of mine, this guy took me out and was like, you have to go out on three dates. And I'm like, where am I going to meet a guy? Like I'm a writer. I sit at home and, and write and I have kids and he's like you have to get on match.com and go on three dates i'm like fine i'm gonna do it so i get on i I bet your profile was like i want you to write my dating profile what did you write it probably was was like a paragraph or was it 200 pages no it was a paragraph because i was really leery i'm like there's gonna be you know crazies out there and but i get matched with my ex (gasps) are you kidding me like what I was not expecting that. I was not either. Did you swipe right? <laughs> I screamed. I'm like, oh, how do you work this thing? Which way do you go? What do you do? I'm like dropping the phone, hitting every button. And he's upstairs, like a floor above. I'm sure doing the same thing. Like, what? But I mean, dating looks weird because you're like, oh, you know, like, uh, you can't pick me up because my ex is mowing the front lawn. I'm like, <laughs> okay, this honestly is a great, this, I, this needs to be in a book. This is hilarious. Yeah. Yeah, like you being picked crazy. up and your ex is mowing in the front and like his, I don't know, his, his boxer shorts, his boxer briefs. Right. Right. You know, I mean, it was just like, you can't bring a date home. So it was like 1950s, like, you know, dating, like you go out for a drink and so Did I you have him drop you off at the corner and you would just run. Once or twice, <laughs> but I did not date much. Okay, <laughs> I don't blame you. Okay, dating is brutal. It's it's under any circumstances, right? But those were, you know. But I got married young. I'm like, I should probably date a little and see what it's all about. And then ended up getting set up with my boyfriend the week I moved out. I moved seven houses up the street. Um, You're seven houses away from your ex. No, I'm two blocks away now. I'm two blocks. We're really far away. Well, that's great for the kids. 
that was the whole point. The kids go back and forth. There's no custody agreement. We oh, that's wonderful. That's exactly how my parents raised us. My dad mm-hmm. was three blocks away. Oh. There was no custody agreement. You know, it's the only thing that kept me off a stripper pole, honestly. Just their mm-hmm. love and cohesiveness. Like cordial? They were cordial. Yeah, I really don't remember much of them projecting any sort of anger through me you know i wasn't really like a conduit to their emotional duress which was honestly is the thing that probably kept me off of you know going into drugs and alcohol at a young age even though i did a little bit but you know my mom after my parents got separated my dad lived and stayed close but then she moved in the neighbor's dad and so it was just kind of like this weird triangle of a neighborhood where my dad's three blocks away and then my friend's dad's in my house. And I'm like, what is Steve staying? How long is Steve staying? <laughs> Steve's still there. Oh, Steve's still there. And were you pretty young or were you? Yeah, I was uh, about nine to 10, I think. Okay. So it's a pretty young age. You know, yeah. you're not really understanding that well or, you know, any of that, the guys in the bedroom, why are they having a sleepover? It's yeah. Know. How long is Steve sleeping? over? Right. Right. <laughs> But, you know, those sort of things like that's what I was asking, you know, that for me, that was such a huge uh, influence and it really impacted my views on healthy relationships and my views on the family unit, love, you know, how to be love, how to give love. Mm-hmm. A lot of it was sort of even though my parents did the right thing like you and your husband ex-husband did where you stay close and it's all about the kids and there aren't any these parameters put on because we're spiteful towards each other even though that was instilled there still was a neglect aspect Mm -hmm. to the process of it because my neighbor's dad did move into the house so it still made me go oh so we okay so we're sleeping with people's husbands is that okay all right i got it yeah that's that's a relationship So, you know, for me, that really fueled my desire to sort of connect on this level of humor and communicate that way because I didn't know how else to communicate because I felt awkward about everything. So I just found that making people laugh Mm -hmm. made me feel connected. Mm -hmm. Um, Does writing make you feel connected to the larger mass? Does it make you feel like you're a part of this, like, oneness with people because they're reading your thoughts and your feelings and your experiences essentially. Yeah. I mean, just going back to what you said, you know, it's kind of interesting because like there is no perfect childhood, just like we're talking about the perfect images people put out on social media, like, and, you know, some of my friends have said the happiest day of my life is when my parents told me they're getting divorced. They all the time. <laughs> and other people like they married and there's like this simmering resentment and low level tension. And like, I mean, parents, we're going to screw it up, you know, every way possible. Like it's, it, it's never like no kid is going to get through without some level of trauma. Just hopefully it won't be too bad. And we're all going to cope in different ways. Like you turn to humor, like that's the way that, you know, a really healthy way. There could have been many other things you could have done. Like that could have heroin. Been I went to humor, not heroin. Right. But then you could have written the book, right? Are we we're coming full, full circle? That's right. Heroin. I could have had like a really sweet, like Kurt Vonnegut moment in my life. No, it always comes back to heroin. I don't know. It always, that's a great opening sentence to a book. Yes. It always, I, and I tell that to people because I've got it so much on the mind when I'm, whenever I'm in conversation with people, I'm like, 
That's the opening line to your memoir. Yeah. <laughs> it always comes back it. to Keep the heroin. with it. <laughs> right? I mean, just the way a book title can inspire you to write a, a sentence. That's how I work. I work in like lyrics. Yeah. So you start with the sentence that just kind of comes to you and then you go off that. Yeah, I do. Because a lot of my writing is conversational when I'm out with friends or uh, podcasting inspires me a lot. You know, a sentence will I'll write down a sentence for Mm -hmm. stand up, you know, it'll be a statement or something. And um, here's a really powerful sentence. I'm going to tell you just because I'm getting used to being truthful. Uh, the first time I had sex, I was raped. So I'm going off. That is a deep, deep dive into something very heavy. But because of that, I'm intrigued by it because it's so difficult. Where do I go from there? Mm. How do I develop that into something? So that's something that happened to you. And that's a line in your memoir. Yes. Wow. Wow. That Heavy at 58 minutes in, huh? <laughs> but I'm so glad. You know what? The thing is, we women are t- like, we get these messages. You're not supposed to talk about being raped. You're not supposed to talk about miscarriage. You're not su- supposed to talk about being roped on the subway, whatever it is. I applaud you for talking about it. I think that's wonderful. And I think people listening are going to maybe, you know, say that happened to me too. And I haven't been able to tell anybody about it. Yeah. You know, I worked as a rape crisis counselor briefly for a couple of years to just go and be with women and, and, you know, unfortunately, some uh, teenage boys who had been assaulted and um, would just be with them during the hospital, you know, explaining what's going to happen to them. And, you know, I would just say, like, you're a survivor. You're not a victim. You're a survivor. And whatever choices you made in that situation kept you alive kept you here and it was yes. to do. That's a good point. That's a really good point. And I also think it's um, serendipitous, not surprising because of your background with journalism. Mm-hmm. I, I find that the fact that you did um, a crisis therapy with, with rape victims, it makes sense, but it's also kind of interesting that I chose to say that. And you mentioned that, you know, it's also another inspiring Mm-hmm. scenario and makes me feel like, Oh, that's, that would be really good just from a personal standpoint, but also just f- getting information, understanding other people's stories mm-hmm. and hearing, you know, their, their survival. And, mm-hmm. and, and I think honestly, like th- that's what this survival is a really great word because this book really helped me survive a very difficult time in my life. And I've told you that, and I really thank you for it. But also one of the themes in this book is survival as well on, on many levels. And also with my podcast, it's that's sort of what we touch base on is, you know, I even take it a step further. I always like to say like, it's not so much about survival as it is thrival. Like how can you Mm -hmm. go from victim to survival to thriving? How do you turn your survivorship into a motivator to, to you being able to show up and be able to be empowering and all those things. Um, So from one woman to another, what can you say? My question to you is Sarah Pekinen. What can you say to men and women, but men as well, but mainly a lot of chicks are listening to this. Hey, ladies, what can you say to those ladies that maybe have been listening and want to be a writer, been listening, and they've gone through some difficulties? Mm -hmm. Anybody who's sort of 
on the brink of maybe taking a chance on themselves as a creative, what sort of words can you give them to make the next step? Yeah, I mean, find your people, the people who are going to lift you up, tell you you can do it, hold your hand, help you drink the shot of tequila with you, all of that, like find your, your sisterhood in whatever shape it comes in, young, old, men, women, whatever it is. And, you know, just you're never, it's never too late. You know, I mean, I, I didn't start this second act until, you know, really, you know, my, the second half of my life. Many people start it later than that. It's never too late. That's a great message. It's never too late, you guys. And don't use that as an excuse. Well, I'm old. I'm this. I'm that. No, you're not. We're eternal beings floating in nothing. We can we we have plenty of time to achieve our goals. Um, I I honestly I I feel honored that you took time to talk to me because. Uh, I, like I said, I'm such a nerd and, you know, some people are like, oh, I'm such a big fan of Hugh Jackman, which I am as well. And I would love to have him on the podcast, of course, because he's so cute and I would never do anything to like disrupt his household. But if he was having I'm a rough time, to, I would be like, come on. That he's on. I'm, I'm free to come. <gasps> yes. I'll have you come on as well. Thank we you. will tag team Hugh Jackman. Right here in the middle. Yeah, of course. The Hugh between us. <laughs> the Hugh between us. I, I want to thank you for writing this book. I want to thank you for being so open and also letting me fangirl uh, and message you. I slid into your DMs. I'm like, I need you on the podcast. I love it. I love it. Thank you. And, you know, I, I don't know. It wasn't like one person or the other. I I honestly, like I looked you both up and I, I was going to hit you both up, but it just naturally the universe sent me to you. So please send Greer my love and maybe I can have you all three on uh, after I read your next book. Cause I always like to read the book before I have the person on. It feels weird otherwise. Yeah. I'm so glad not everybody does that. Thank you for doing that. Yes. Yeah, well, we can come on together with the next book. We'll send yeah. you and I'm going to send you plot and structure. It's going to be my thank you to you for that's so sweet. Yeah. I'm going to send you some weed. <laughs> Great. I've got teenagers. They'll, they'll intercept it. <laughs> I'll send it to your husband's house, down, ex-husband's house down the street. Just so you don't get in trouble. Hilarious. Well, thank you so much. Where can my listeners find you? Tell them anything, any downloads or whatever. I'll put all the links into the show notes as well. But where can my followers find you? On any social media, you know, it's Um <laughs> And thank you. I was like, wait a minute. Classier. Um, yeah, and just Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Um, yeah. And you guys look out in March for the Golden Couple. The Golden Couple. Thank you so much. Thank you, thank you for taking time. Uh, I appreciate you allowing me to nerd out for an hour with you. I had so much fun. Thank you. Thank you. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.